It's time for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Doug is a certified financial planner, providing you with a personal financial hotline to answer your questions about tax planning, investments, retirement planning, estate planning, and education planning. Doug and Linda are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing financial and investment services since 1983. Doug and Linda will be answering your questions on WPTF's phone lines anytime during the next hour. Call 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Call toll-free 1-800-662-7979. And for mobile phones, it's star 680. And now, Doug and Linda Lewis and Money Matters. Hello there, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters with Doug and Linda has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all of your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 20 years. And again, with me as usual tonight is my wife, Linda, who works with me in our firm, Lewis Financial Management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Doug and I are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing investment in financial advice since 1983. For over 20 years, we've been answering your questions on the WPTF phone lines. They are your questions and our answers. So sit back and enjoy, or if you're free, call us tonight on the open lines. We'll take your calls anytime during the next hour. You're free to call in and ask any financial question about your own personal financial planning. Call us at 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Or you can call us toll-free long distance at 1-800-662-7979. Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, what's a will, what's a living will. And yes, it really can confuse you, but you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs, and people are asking, is there any solution? Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles, and that's the Certified Financial Planner. It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life. Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt. Well, yes, Linda. And yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement. 
and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan, and they want to know, should they take it, and if so, how should they invest it? Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts? If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments. Home mortgage interest, charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion. Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term, or universal? Should they have long-term nursing care coverage? You're right, Lynn. And, of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds? Bond mutual funds, equipment leasing partnerships, REITs, CDs, gold, annuities. So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. And to you out there listening, if you've got a question on your mind about cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning, tax planning, insurance, or investments, Call us now on the open lines and we'll answer your financial planning questions. Those numbers to call are 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Out-of-towners, call us toll-free at 1-800-662-7979. And if you just want to sit back and listen to the callers through the years, welcome to the show. Well, Doris, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I have a house and... It has quite a large mortgage. Okay. How big is the mortgage? 231. Okay. The problem is it isn't selling, and I want to move away. I've considered a charitable remainder trust, but Uh I have been told by a CPA that that would mean that I would have to put 231 in cash and the house into such a trust. Uh Well, no, he's not exactly correct. What you have to do is you pay off the mortgage first. You can't transfer a mortgaged property into a charitable trust, but there are ways around that. But he's right. You you have to pay off the trust, the mortgage first, then transfer it in. How much do you have in liquid assets altogether, all of your other assets that are liquid? It's around 800000 And what would the house sell for under a fire sale? If there was no mortgage, maybe two seventy. Okay, number one, we need to move about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars of your liquid assets into mutual funds. They can be very safe, conservative mutual funds. We can put those mutual funds in street name through a brokerage account, 
and you can immediately write a check for 230000 against them. You are basically borrowing from yourself, no application, no t- uh, suitability, no anything. You take that $231,000 and you pay off the mortgage. You transfer the house, which is now mortgage-free, into a charitable remainder unit trust. You let the trust go ahead and sell the property immediately for as long as, as little as it, uh, whatever it will bring. If it brings 275000 that's wonderful. If it brings $275,000, then you have it start paying you back immediately. It pays you back monthly, and it can pay you back because all that cash will be sitting in the trust. That $275,000 sitting in the trust can go ahead and pay you maybe $24,000 a year or $2,000 a month. That money, as it comes back to you immediately, can be used to go right back over to your margin account at your mor- uh, against your mutual funds. In the meantime, your mutual funds will also be producing income for you to live on. And finally, the capital gains will not be an issue because you will be given a charitable deduction of about $70,000 for making the transfer of the property into the charitable trust. I'll make an appointment so I can come and see you. All right. It can all be done, though. Thanks, Doris. Thank you. Thank you Bye-bye. Right. That number to call is 8727000, if you're in the Raleigh area. And uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us on Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, answering all of your money matters. Well, Doug, people certainly need to have a better eye as to how they find a financial planner, right? Or what what are the guidelines? You're right, Lynn. This is the type of thing we've been warning people about for years. You don't just get a financial planner because it's someone you've heard about while playing golf with your buddy on the golf course, or it's a good friend of so-and-so that you met at a cocktail party. That's not the way that you select a financial planner. There is a significant danger in getting bad financial advice. Well, what are some guidelines that you could suggest to some of our listeners regarding finding a financial planner? Well, there are a number of ways. You should definitely find out how the planner is compensated and where the money is going to come from to pay the planner's fees. Then the next thing is you should ask for regular reports on the performance of investments. These are the status reports. Quite frankly, Lynn, if a planner doesn't provide ongoing status reports, then I don't think you're getting planning. Is it because they're, they're using a salesperson or what? Well, typically, consider it, Lindy. You go to a place and a number of things can happen. Let's assume they really produce a financial plan for you. That's a document. That's a snapshot of where you're at right now. But then what about what happens afterwards? There are planners that go ahead and just take a snapshot of where you're at today And the purpose of that snapshot is to basically sell you some investments. That's something to watch out for. That's a sales tool. But the important thing is not so much what you do when you start with a planner, but it's how things progress, these ongoing reports, if you're getting ongoing planning. It is important to quiz your planner and find out information about the planner and then also to have some proof of uh, how they're working for you, correct? Right. So what you want to do is you want to see a sample set of ongoing performance reports, and you also want to look at the man's or the woman's background, and that's through the ADV. Now, the ADV is a crucial issue, Lynn. The ADV is the document that discloses everything about that individual. Exactly. The ADV is the form that you definitely should ask for when selecting a financial planner. 
if a person says to you they don't have one or they don't have to file one, then you need to understand that they are not offering financial planning advice as their main profession, and you should not deal with them as a financial planner because the ADV is required by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, it gives a total disclosure of the person's history and past. So that's very crucial. If a person doesn't have one, then you're not dealing with a financial planner. So it tells you about their background, their education, their fees, and their experience? Right. It doesn't tell you if he's good or bad. It just gives you their fee schedule, their biographical, and how they do their work. One thing that you might want to look for, which to me is important, is what relevant education or credentials does the planner have in the planning field or the financial services industry? Education may be as important as experience or investment history. For example, is the individual certified? Has he gone through a two-year educational program to become a certified financial planner? I think that's very important. Another thing would be, how long has the planner been doing total financial planning? How long has the planner been working directly with clients in the comprehensive financial planning process? Isn't it important also to, to know what did the practitioner do before he or she became a financial planner? It appears that most financial planners come from fields related to financial services, right? If they're real planners, then you definitely should find that out. What did the planner do before they became a financial planner? What about asking to see a sample financial plan? Now, this to me is crucial. If it's a financial planner, they're producing a plan. I do not accept the fact that we're going to get a canned plan where you fill in a little questionnaire and it's going to be sent off to uh, some service in New York and you're going to come back and get a computerized financial plan. That's not financial planning. You should see a sample financial plan and find out what it's going to look like and is it going to be produced by the planner, him or herself. Okay. It's important also to find out what are the practitioner's areas of expertise, correct? That's right, Lynn. I think that's also important because ideally you're looking for someone who has experience or expertise in investments, taxes, insurance, estate. You want to find that there are specific areas that meet what you're looking for. The numbers to call during the week at the office are area code 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And if after listening to the show, if there's some question that's been on your mind that you need an answer about, I'll be happy to do what I can to help you and just call the office. If we're looking at a, at a checklist, I'd say that we've got number one, education. Number two, how long. Number three, what the planner did before becoming a planner. Number four, ask to see a sample financial plan. Number five, what are the areas of expertise. Number six. Verify that the planner has a close working relationship with accountants, attorneys, and other competent professionals. Financial planning practitioners are generalists and may also be specialists in certain areas, but you ought to check references of professionals that they're working with. That'd be number six. And Doug, isn't it helpful also to find out what type of clientele the practitioner serves? I think that's good. Number seven, Lynn, what type of clientele? It's not uncommon for some planners to work specifically with particular professional groups or income levels or age groups. I know in our practice, there are certain types of people that we do not work with. And it's very important for people that are looking for planners to find out, will the practitioner with whom you're talking work directly with you, or will you be working with an associate handling the account, right? That's an important question, Lynn. Find out, is he going to be doing 
the work directly for you or will you be giving your account to someone else? I've been asked that question many times through the years. How do I know that you'll be doing my planning or will you just be giving me to an assistant to someone? Okay. And another question I think people should ask is, how will the practitioner keep you informed of new financial information, correct? Either through newsletters, seminars, telephone, letter, or personal meetings. Well, you know, Lynn, this is the matter of what we call status reports. Right. Uh, I think herein is a very big lack of understanding of people. When they go to see a planner, they don't realize that the initial set of meetings is not as important to them as what's going to happen afterwards. So ask to see the sample reports of what's going to happen after the planning has got started. How will the planner provide you with ongoing reports? And how will the planner get paid for these ongoing reports? And one of the practitioner's roles may be to suggest financial products to implement your plan. Will the planner provide generic or specific investment advice, right? And who's going to do the research? Who's going to go ahead and actually do the analysis on the products that are recommended? And then I think a very crucial issue to ask is, does the practitioner have any vested interest in any of the products that he recommends? And also, people need to find out how the financial planning practitioner is compensated and whether or not there is a charge for the plan or for periodic reviews as well as revisions, right? That's right. This is the most important thing, Lynn. Financial planning practitioners are compensated in one of two ways, either fee-only or fee commission. Now, some people say they are planners and they work on commission-only arrangements, but to me, that's a basic sales approach. If you're doing something for free and the goal is to sell some products, that's not real financial planning. But there are planners that work on a fee-only or a reduced fee arrangement, and you need to be very clear on how the fee structure works, whether you are paying your planner on a fee-only arrangement and then you'll take his or her advice and go to another broker or someone to do the investments and the commissions will be paid to the other individual, or whether the planner will be working on a fee commission arrangement and how much he's going to get paid. So you you need to really be comfortable that the planner is being uh, open and honest with you about how he's being compensated and that he's being compensated properly. You don't want someone who is not being paid well for the services or you're not going to get any service. Correct. And it's important, too, Doug, as people are looking for planners, uh, it's one thing to to be checking out the practitioner that you're interested in working with, but also to sit down and get that notebook out and start jotting questions down that are on your minds or concerns that you have regarding your own situation, correct? You're right, Lynn. You need to meet with your planner ahead of time, bring a list of questions, get some references, client references, call clients that they're working with, see a sample financial plan, get comfortable that this is the person you work, and then go into it 100% realizing that this is a person that has a lot of influence over your financial future. If you'd like any other information, you can call our office, and that's 8727000. I'll be happy to send you some information. And I do believe we have a caller. Wait, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Doug, Linda, I enjoy your show very much. Thank you very much. I'd like, if you could, to explain to me the difference between no-load, front-end load, and back-end load funds. It's sort of like saying, uh, do I sell my house with or without the use of a real estate broker? Well, 
the, the bottom line shouldn't be do I sell it with without the help of a real estate broker. It's where do I make the most money? Right, right. And so what the sales charge is or what the load is, that is the charge that does not get into the hands of the mutual fund managers. It's what you pay someone to help you select the different funds. That's what the load is. Okay. Uh, the load is simply a commission. Right. It's a commission paid to either a broker or financial planner to help you determine which mutual fund is best for you. When you say a no-load fund, that's for the person who says, I don't need any help. I can get my own funds and I don't need any help. Uh, and so uh, funds who promote themselves as no-load funds, they go directly to the public and they say, you don't need the help of anybody else, you can go ahead and read our material and we will tell you why uh, you should invest with us. Um, that's generally recognized for very sophisticated investors that are able to do so. The question then of do you pay the load up front, as most funds do, or do you uh, go into a fund that says, you don't have to pay any load, we'll pay the commission to the person for you, but if you ever surrender or withdraw all of your money from this fund and cash it out and take it and buy yourself a car or a house and consume it, then at that time, the load will be paid. That's called a back-end load. Okay. Uh, I personally don't think that anybody should ever go into a mutual fund thinking that they're going to one day consume it. You should be trying to invest your money to such a degree that it provides comfort for you and it supports you, but not that you just consume the whole thing at one time. Right, right. Um, and that's that's like, you know, that, that's what I call killing your chickens, and then you have no chickens and eggs. Right. Much better to live off the eggs. So in, in the, and I guess if I'm understanding it, then a front-end load, let's say you went in with 10000 you'd pay whatever the commission is on the 10000 on the way in. Right, maybe $500. And then as you liquidate it, or, or as you take extract pieces from it to do things or break it out of the retirement or whatever, then there would be no additional commissions charged. Right. Where on a back end, let's say over the course of 10 years, it became 15000 and I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. Yeah, that'd be a pretty bad fund, by the way, but yeah. Okay. But, then <laughs> but let's, say basically... it, let's, say, let's say it became 30000 Okay, and then you'd be, um, you'd pay the commissions on the total value if you did take it all out at one time. And actually, most of back-end load funds, they peter out over a six-year period. So if you wait to send you 10 years, there is nothing left anyway to, to be subtracted. What do you, you mean that there's nothing left? There's no more commission? Right. A lot of the funds offer incentives that say, even if it's back-end loaded, if you're willing to, I mean, if you stay in the, in the fund for a period of, let's say, six years, okay. then there's, there's still, a, you never uh, pay the load. So if you were to get out in the first year, it'd be X percentage, and the fourth year, it'd be a lower percentage, and then right. beyond six, it would basically be zero percentage. Right. And then there's the question of, well, what if I don't want to liquidate my fund and, and consume the money, but maybe I don't like the way my fund is running, and I'd like to switch to another fund? Well, then, if you're in the family of funds, you can move from one fund to the other and not pay any commission, any load. Most families of funds let you move from liquidate one fund and go to another fund that they offer, maybe a stock fund or a bond fund or a balanced fund and so forth, and not pay it then. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. 
Doug, in relation to Wade's call, what are the expense ratios that one usually experiences if they You see, that's a much more funds. crucial factor, and that's something that not many people focus on. The load, whether it's front or rear, is a one-time sales charge that goes to the broker or the planner. However, what about the internal charges of running the fund? Most no-load funds have higher expense ratios. Okay. But still the question is, well, what does the expense ratio, what is it composed of? And it's very interesting. The expense ratio has three categories. The three categories of the of what composes an expense ratio in a mutual fund are, first of all, the management fees. And that's how much the mutual fund manager is paid in his salary, how much it costs to, for the rent and the, all the support of the manage of the, of what's called the mutual fund advisory company. The management fees are one part of the expense ratio. And then there's a second part, which is called the 12B1 fee. And that's usually, uh, as much as a quarter of a percent for marketing the product. Uh, and then there's a third type called other expenses which are audit expenses, legal expenses, shareholder transfer, agent expenses, custodial expenses. Those are the other expenses. Now, those three categories, management fees, 12B1s, and other expenses are the three categories broken out in every mutual fund prospectus. And typically, the industry average is about 1.5% per year. For the total of the three? Yes. Okay. There's a major expense that is not included in the expense ratios and is not a load, but no one ever knows about it, but it impacts drastically how much your fund makes in money. And those are the trading costs. In other words, the mutual fund manager, when he buys and sells stocks in your portfolio for you, he calls a brokerage firm. Right. And so there are commissions every time he buys and every time he sells. Well, these trading costs can be another 2% added on to a portfolio if the portfolio is what they call turned over over a year's period of time. Right. If your mutual fund manager has a philosophy of buying stocks and holding them for the long term, then his trading costs are going to be less than a manager who has a 200% uh, turnover ratio, which means he turns the entire portfolio over for the entire year. Right. So if you have an average cost ratio, let's say as the industry has of maybe 1.5%, and you've got another... Uh, um, trading costs, that's another 2%. You can have as much as 3.5% taken out of your fund every single year. And these are the things that you need to get into in the selecting of the fund. The load is a, is, is a minor issue. See. You see, that's the help of the advisor. Right. But uh, those are the factors that need to be looked at in terms of how your money is going to grow over time. Okay, well, great. I certainly enjoy your show. And if you have further questions, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for calling, Wade. Doug, what's new in the area of tax planning? Well, Lynn, give and you shall receive. A tax deduction, that is. Uncle Sam encourages generosity by subsidizing it. Your write-off begins with the first dollar you give if you itemize your deductions. To be deductible, your gift has to go to a nonprofit, religious, educational, or charitable group that meets IRS standards. If you are uncertain whether an organization is approved by the IRS, you may check with the IRS or obtain IRS Publication Number 78. Donating appreciated property, such as stocks or real estate, is often the best option. 
Not only do you take an income tax deduction for the full value of your contribution, but the tax-exempt recipient pays no capital gains tax when the property is sold. There is a limit to how much can be deducted in a single year. You can claim charitable contribution deductions up to 30% of your adjusted gross income without worrying about the twists and turns of the IRS limits. The rules are complicated, so if your generosity exceeds that level, you may need professional advice to structure your gifts for the best tax outcome. Your certified financial planner can also help you recompensate your children for the portion of your legacy that you give to charity. One option is life insurance for the amount that you give away. Your heirs should take out the policy on your life, but you could give them the money to pay the premiums. Select the strategy with your certified financial planner. Make sure your gift doesn't force you to pay the alternative minimum tax. Discuss your benefits of using a gift annuity or a pooled income fund. Or maybe you need a charitable lead trust, a life estate agreement, a bargain sale, or a life insurance gift. The right strategies for you will depend on what you want to donate, how much it's worth, and whether you want to receive income for your generosity. If you've been wondering about charitable contributions, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, seek competent financial advice, and if you have any financial questions, just give me a call at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Well, Doug, basically, what are the areas that financial planning covers? Well, you should know What that. are the seven areas of planning? I'm going to let you tell me. All right. Uh, aren't the seven areas of planning uh, cash flow planning? That's number one. Tax planning. Very good. Number two. Insurance planning. That's number three. Investment planning. That's number four. Retirement planning. Number five. Estate planning. Number six. And the last one is educational planning. That's number seven. Those are the seven areas of financial planning. Cash flow planning, tax planning, insurance planning, investment planning, retirement planning, estate planning, and educational planning. So that covers all the areas of planning that one should have addressed in their situation. Right, and those are areas that we see the headlines about in the week, every week, in one of those seven areas. Use a financial planner and specifically check out the credentials of the planner that you use. And if you have any questions locally, you can call us at the office at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Let's take another call, Doug. Hi, John. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I just wanted to ask you about uh, revocable trust. Uh, I have a an aunt who is setting up a, a revocable trust, mm-hmm. and uh, I would be the trustee. Okay. And I was just wondering. We've been to an attorney, but he didn't. Uh, he wasn't too good at explaining things that, uh, about the thing. Then why are you using him? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the one of the things you want to watch out for in uh, in in having estate documents produced is you want to always understand everything. And in my opinion, if the attorney can't explain to you what he is charging you to produce, then you probably need to see another attorney. Let's get to the specifics of your aunt. How old is she? Uh, ninety-two. She's ninety-two years old. And what's the size of her estate? Uh, it's about. Uh Close to $500,000. $500,000. All right. And who's the beneficiary? Uh, I, I am. Okay. Now, if her estate, and by the way, what is, what's in we the We want est- to avoid probate. Okay. Let's go on a little further. Uh, is, 
is it everything in the state of North Carolina? Yes. Is it in, uh, what kind of assets? Are they stocks and bonds and stocks cash? Stocks and bonds. How about real estate? Uh, very little real estate, just a home. Okay. The, uh, the, the avoidance of probate is, uh, depending on who you talk to, it may or may not be a very severe issue. It may be a bugaboo that, uh, that, 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 that you need to sort of look a little further at and get a quote on how much would be the probate expenses that an attorney would charge you to go ahead and take the estate through probate. But it's true. If you create a revocable living trust, what you do is you create an entity, just like a corporation, and then your aunt gives away everything to this corporation, which we call a trust. Right. And this trust, uh, we will for the, si- for the moment say that it's a living trust because it's being created during her lifetime. Yes. Other kinds of trust are testamentary trust, and all trusts break into those two broad categories, living trust or testamentary trust. Many times we write testamentary trust language into living trust documents, but a testamentary trust is one that begins its existence at death. On the other hand, this is a living trust, and then all trusts also are either revocable or irrevocable. And the one that your mother, that your aunt is trying to do is a revocable living trust. It doesn't have to be. Right. That, that simply says that she's reserving the right to change her mind yeah. and collapse this thing. Okay, so that's the revocable living trust in terms of what it is. Now, what happens next is and why you do it. She then wants to go ahead and give everything she owns into the name of this trust. Yes. Every trust has four players. There is the donor. That's the one who sets it up and gives stuff to it. That's your aunt. Every trust has a trustee. That's the tr- That's the person who runs the show. Usually, we make the trustee the same person as the donor, but in very senior citizens, we choose someone else. But the trustee is the one who runs the trust. And the third party is the beneficiary of the income, called the income beneficiary. And that's the one that the trustee pays income to. And the fourth party is the remainder beneficiary, and that's the one who gets it at the end when the trust is over. The numbers to call during the week at the office are area code 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Okay. Now, what you are doing when, when you create a revocable living trust is your aunt's going to give everything to this trust. And so the deeds will have to be transferred and everything will be moved into the name of the trust. And if you're the trustee, then you're the one that she'll be giving it to. But she's reserving the right to revoke it and change her mind and take it back. Yes. Now, when I told you everything to me, there's an exception of about $50,000 that goes to the housekeeper and the uh, man who cuts the yard and, uh, you know, cleans, does the odd jobs. Okay. Well, that doesn't... That's the only, uh, only request she wants to... Well, understand that the revocable living trust is an entity that goes for a period of time, and in this kind of time, it's going to go for the life of your aunt, just like a corporation. Yes. But in this trust document that describes what happens, there are two parts to it, basically. One part describes what happens while the trust is in existence during her lifetime. Yes. The other part is just like a will. Right. It says who gets what when the trust is over. Okay. And in that part of the trust document, 
it's identical to the will. It, as a matter of fact, it takes the place of the will in many cases. So the, the housekeeper gets X amount and you get X amount and okay. Jim gets X amount and so forth. So those are the, the will provisions in the revocable living trust. The most important thing, however, the most important reason that you would do a revocable living trust for a person uh, 92 is for incapacitation. If indeed she becomes incapacitated, now there is someone that can go ahead and take care of her affairs for her. And that's why, that's the main reason a person sets up a revocable living trust is to provide for incapacitation. Some people try and do this with a power of attorney, but powers of attorney don't often work. But the revocable living trust removes that problem. Right. Now you're the trustee, and we set up a sequence of trustees. Uh, very often, people look for the revocable living trust as being um, a way to avoid estate taxes, but it will not avoid the estate taxes. Yes. The principal reason is the avoidance of, uh, in, or the, the solving the problem of incapacitation. The second reason that people would do this is the time of probate. At the moment of her death, then you don't have to go through a nine-month waiting period to go through probate. The trustee simply distributes to whomever the instructions are to distribute, which in this case would be yourself. I uh, see. So I'm better off going with the re uh, revocable, right? Yes, you are. The only thing is that uh, you should probably make sure you can customize these things and put nice little delicate features into them. Uh so you want to use an attorney who is creating a revocable living trust uh, that knows what he's doing and knows, in other words, unfortunately, there's yeah. a lot of computer softwares that you can just print these things out. I'm afraid that's what I've uh, gotten involved with. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that's probably not the way that you want to go. If you will call my office during the week, it might do well to just to set up a meeting if you want to be happy to meet with you and go over what she's got, or just simply I could recommend a couple of attorneys in town that specialize in this area. Well, I'll call your office. Uh, looks like I should have come to you to begin with, so I'll give you a ring this week. Right. Thank you, John. And our number in Raleigh is 872-7000. That's USA 7000. And and start writing down your questions, and then when if you meet with you know Doug or another financial planner, then that individual should be able to address your questions. Good enough. And how long does it take to set this up? Well, a good a, a good attorney can usually do those in about a week, a week to two. Yeah. Okay, I'll check with you this week then. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Doug, what's new in the area of investment planning? Well, then I think uh, a couple of things are interesting. I think the big thing is to look at mutual funds and to realize in the way of investments and investment planning, that people don't understand much about mutual funds. And I think one of the big questions people are confused about is, can a mutual fund go broke? I think a lot of people wonder, or some people have wondered, what happens if my mutual fund goes broke? I've heard that well, question. Well, can it go broke? <laughs> yeah. Well, a mutual fund's assets can and will fluctuate in value, but the liabilities, that means what it owes plus the shareholder's equity, can never exceed its assets, so the mutual fund can't go broke, Linda. A mutual fund can't go broke. Well, Doug, another question that uh, some have is, what happens if the fund sponsor goes bankrupt? Um, will I lose my money, uh, you know, when the bankrupt company is a private company and can't obtain the types of information that routinely would be available about publicly traded companies? Well, in the financial difficulties of the fund's sponsor or advisor, 
uh, have no relationship to the assets in your mutual fund, which is organized as a separate company. No creditor of an investment advisor or sponsor would have any recourse to any assets in the mutual fund to meet their obligations, so there really is no relationship. And I guess most important of all is under the Investment Company Act of 1940, mutual funds are subject to very strict requirements governing custody of their securities and other investments. Most funds use bank custodians, and the standard mutual fund bank custody agreement is far more elaborate and more specific than the typical bank custody agreement for other clients. So uh, there really is not an issue there. Doug, what about fraud? Can the fund managers take a person's money? Well, of course, dishonesty can occur in any business. But again, the Investment Company Act of 1940 provides a variety of very effective safeguards for investors. In order to protect against fraud, the 1940 Act subjects the advisor to many legal restrictions, especially regarding transactions between itself and the funded advisors and joint transactions. And quite frankly, Linda, I have never heard of any case in any mutual fund where there has been fraud. Doug, and what happens if the broker-dealer is holding uh, some mutual fund shares in street name or shareholder name and the broker-dealer firm goes bankrupt? Is a person likely to lose their money? Well, no one can guarantee the net asset value of a stock or a bond fund. However, your mutual fund shares are safe. That's for sure. Once again, the assets in the mutual fund belong to the mutual fund shareholder, not to the brokerage firm. So let's say that you've got your mutual fund shares held through any of the firms out there the assets in that fund do not belong to the brokerage firm. They belong to you, the shareholder, even though they're held in street name. And even if your mutual fund shares are held in street name, if your broker-dealer is insured by SIPC, then these shares, including money market mutual fund shares, are protected just as any other individual securities. Call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Now, there's another question that comes up uh, from time to time when people do call me uh, at the office. And some people wonder about the hidden costs that are found, you know, in wrap accounts. Well, the wrap account issue is a very, very confusing issue, a hot issue, and one that people want to know about with regard to the world of investments. And really, do you understand what a wrap account is, Linda, how it works? Maybe you can explain it. All right. A wrap account is where you go ahead and you, instead of uh, agreeing to pay commissions to a brokerage firm, the brokerage firm agrees to go ahead for a flat fee, and it's usually anywhere between 1% and 3%, and most of the time it's 2% to 3% of your money or of what's in your account. They will buy and sell for you through the year and charge no commissions. There have been a number of articles trying to expose the hidden fees in the wrap accounts. I'm really not very much in favor of wrap accounts, and I don't like them very much. I think they're quite expensive. I know individual investors have pumped more than $40 billion into wrap accounts in recent years, and they are one of the hottest investment products on Wall Street, but I really don't like them. Uh, you've got the annual fee, and then in addition to the annual fee, you've got uh, a lot of hidden costs there. And if you look at the true cost of a wrap account, investors could easily be paying the equivalent of 5% of their assets. But that's not the same as a 5% commission on a mutual fund. That's 5% every single year. Every year. Every year. As opposed to a mutual fund where you pay your commission, your load, one time, and that's it. Well, Doug, and you're not necessarily getting advice along the way, are you? No. 
No, a I wrap mean, account is not an advice account. It's basically you're handing over your money on a discretionary basis. Well, there are some. I shouldn't say they're not always discretionary, but the arrangement is basically on whether to pay commissions or whether to pay a one-time uh, annual, well, it's not one-time, but an annual fee. And certainly, if you are listening uh, this evening and you have your money in a wrap account, maybe you should take a look at whether this is the best uh, arrangement for you. Right, Doug? And have you done some serious financial planning? Have you jotted down the questions that uh, are, have been on your mind for a time that maybe your broker hasn't been able to answer? Uh, sometimes people have questions about estate planning and tax issues and uh, retirement issues. Right, Doug? That's right. Simply paying a wrap fee on a you know annual basis uh, really doesn't get you anywhere, does it, Doug? No, it really doesn't, Linda. The, the whole view of focusing on trying to save money that way generally, in my opinion, turns out to be more expensive rather than less expensive. And if this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, answering all of your money matters. Well, Doug, what's new in the area of retirement planning? Well, Linda, as people are laid off or people are encouraged to retire early or people reach retirement, they're generally given a package the offer of a package. Typically, your package comes like this. You get the choice of a lifetime income stream or a lump sum. Okay, so the first option they usually give you is a lifetime income check and nothing left over after you die. It's just a check for the rest of your life and maybe for the rest of your spouse's life. Then they give you a second choice. They're going to give you a lump sum if you don't want that check. Now, the lump sum will depend upon how long you've worked there and so on. How do you protect those funds from having to pay any taxes, if at all possible? You can pay no taxes on the lump sum distribution, and you can roll the whole amount over into what we call an IRA rollover account. That's an IRA rollover account. It's just like the IRA that you set up, but you can do the rollover, and you pay no taxes, and now the whole lump sum goes over there, and now you can invest it over there as you please then you pay taxes on the money as it comes out and as you choose to take it out of your IRA. Does it matter if a person does the rollover to a bank or to a mutual fund or to an insurance company? Does it matter where that money goes? It matters very much. It matters very much. Now, here you have to realize that somebody is out there with a sales pitch to hand you. And where that money goes, you're subject or not subject to a sales pitch. For example, let's say you do the rollover to a bank. You do the IRA rollover to the bank. Well, the bank is then going to say, by the way, now that the money is there, you got to put it somewhere in that account. How would you like to put it in our CDs? <clears throat> or how would you like our discount broker to help you? And so on. So you're basically a captive now when you choose putting it over to a bank to the particular products that bank has to offer. You can do a rollover to a mutual fund. By the same token, they're mutual funds that act as the IRA rollover trustee. And again, you're subject to that mutual fund. You're a captive and you're buying their product once you roll the money over there. What you want to do is you want to select an independent trustee to roll it over oh. to who has no products whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then the money is over there. And then you tell that trustee what investments you want from the whole world of investments out there. You need to work with a financial advisor such as myself or some financial planner to help you select investments, but the trustee should have no proprietary, no products at all to sell. So all they I do see. is report to the IRS 
that the money got over there and no taxes should be withheld. Okay. That okay. Sounds great. About the taxes, aren't you going to pay now or pay later? Does it matter either way? No, it makes a big difference as a matter of fact. Look here. Let's say you take the lump sum and you pay $50,000 in taxes. Right. All right. And let's say you took $200,000 of lump sum. You got 150000 after you pay your taxes. That 150000 is going to give you, let's say, 15000 a year in income, 10% of 150000 15000 a year in income. All right. Suppose, however, you take the rollover and roll two hundred over. Your two hundred thousand is all over there, making, let's say, twenty thousand a year. You've got the whole thing making for you all along. So it makes a big difference whether you uh, whether you pay the taxes or not. No, you don't pay it. The only way it would make sense if you were to say, "I'm going to pay it eventually down the road," is if I took the whole lump out of the IRA and then paid it. Yes, but nobody's going to do that. I wouldn't let them do it if they were my clients. Okay, that sounds great. And if this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Let's take another call, Doug. Joyce, are you there? How can I help you? This is Doug Lewis. Hi, Mr. Lewis. Uh, my question is this. If you have the funds to pay a vehicle off, it would it still be profitable to go ahead and put the money in the bank and let that draw interest or pay cash for it or run it through a lease. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's walk through it slowly, Joyce. Okay. You're saying if you have the money to pay off a car, I guess you mean a car loan. Uh, where we're in business and we have a lot of equipment, well, what we've done is put the money in the bank, although we're still leasing it. Would it be better just to go on and totally pay all those vehicles off and have them debt-free? Now, wait a minute. Hold, 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 hold it. You said you're leasing the cars. There's no debt if you're leasing them. Well, it's a lease with a dollar in buyout. All right. So, you, so you're not buying the cars. You're leasing them. Correct. Would it be better to go ahead and pay them off and get out of the leases now or go ahead and fulfill the end of the lease? Well, what's the dollar payoff? A dollar. No, but I mean, if you pay them off now ahead of time, do you save anything? You would uh, save the interest that's accumulating. Isn't that right, Ryan? Well, no. On a lease, there is no interest. On a lease, you're paying lease payments. I, I think you're confusing purchasing on time versus leasing. I think I am also. In other words, let's say you buy yourself a Lincoln and put it in the company's name, and you're paying for it over time. All right. Well, you've got a down payment, and you're making principal and interest payments. And if you pay off that note ahead of time, then you stop the interest payments. If you Let's go to another one right quick, well, so I don't run out of time. If you're going to buy a house, let's go this route. I've got this basic, basically the same question I'm asking. All right. If you're going to buy a house and you have the funds available to, to buy, pay the house off and pay cash for it, right? Would it be more profitable to put the money in the bank, let it draw the interest? And get your benefits from the government, you understand what I'm saying, right. your taxes, or to pay the house off as you go into it. Okay, well, I think you confused the two issues. Let's straighten them out because it's a good question. I think your question is, should you pay cash for your house or finance it? Mm -hmm. Is that your question? My, my question is, should you pay cash for everything and, and not have any finances, any borrowed money whatsoever, what I'm trying to get to. Right. Well, it depends on your situation. Do you have high or low taxes? High taxes right now. If you have high taxes and if you purchase a home for cash, then you hurt yourself in two ways. Number one, 
you're not allowed any tax deduction for buying the house for cash, and you're not allowed any tax deduction for uh, for making your payments as you go along because there are no payments. And under the present tax laws, the only two real benefits to you to help you reduce your taxes significantly at all are home mortgage interest and charitable contributions. Okay. So if you want to go ahead and reduce your taxes, that makes uh, a plus for uh, financing your home and making the and making the principal and interest payments over the next 30 years or whatever, and then you get a deduction. That does something else for you on the financial side. It frees up cash to be invested somewhere else to also pay the mortgage or accumulate for retirement. Now, having said all that, if you are in a low tax bracket and you don't need tax reduction, and if you have a hard time making ends meet, then for comfort, it'd be to your benefit to go ahead and pay cash for the house. What kind of income do you all make? 175 plus. Well, if you make $175,000, are, are your living expenses below $175,000? Yeah. Okay. So you, don't have any pro you wouldn't have any problem making mortgage payments. Yeah. All right. If you wouldn't have any problem making mortgage payments, then you, can, you get a double whammy by financing the house. Number one, part of your mortgage payments every month, about one-third, are paid for by Uncle Sam. About one-third of every payment you make on your mortgage payments are going to be taken off of your taxes at the end of the year when you run the computations. And the other thing is, let's say you have a $175,000 home or a $200,000 home, you get and, and you put 20000 down and finance one hundred and sixty. that leaves $180,000 to put into a nice safe investment that's also compounding for you for your retirement. And then when you go ahead and, start and, and take retirement, that's the time to, when your income drops, to pay off the house then. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? I, I do, but I needed to hear it. Oh, that's exactly the way you go. As far as the car, it's a similar situation, except that if it's owned by the business. Is the business a Schedule C or is it a corporation? Schedule C. It's a Schedule C on your personal return. Then what I would do on your car is I would have a home equity line against your home and buy the car by letting the interest buy the car with the home equity line that way you get a double whammy also all your financing payments that you'd normally pay to buy the car with and get no deduction now they're deductible the interest portion also on your taxes because they're going against your home equity line if i can provide any more information for you you can call the office at 8727000 that's usa 7000 we're here in raleigh i'll be happy to either send you some information or See what we can do to answer any more questions that you might have. Very good. Thank you so much. You're sure welcome, Joyce. Call again. I'm glad you're listening. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.
You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.